Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. verbally attest to the fact that we are Christians, then every act of obedience that we do, that's just a modest proof of that, of that reality in our life. It becomes a part of our affirmation, our personal confirmation that, yeah, we truly are saved. So here's the test. How do we know that we know him? The answer is, according to John, by a life of obedience to his word and to his leading in our lives. As a believer, you're called to examine your life to verify you are walking in the light of Jesus as evidence of your faith. Pastor David further explains today that your obedience to God's will is the proof of your verbal claim to being a Christian. What good is saying you have faith if your life isn't showing it? The Apostle John challenged his readers that if they claim Christ lives in them, They must live as Jesus lived, not to gain or maintain salvation, but as a confirmation of salvation. Now here's Pastor David in the book of 1 John chapter 2. As he begins his message, this is just a test. This is a test. For the next 60 minutes, this church is going to conduct a test of your spiritual life. Actually, the church isn't going to conduct the test. We're hoping that you will conduct the test of your own lives. When was the last time you took just any kind of a regular test? You know, your driver's test, uh, some kind of a proficiency test. In younger years, you know, it seemed like you were tested all the time. As we get older, a lot of times you think, well, there's nothing really to test. But the fact is, is as a believer, we are called to test, to examine our lives continually. The Word of God says that we need to be continually doing this. And I want to warn you tonight, we're actually going to look at a couple of tests. We spoke uh, about that in John's epistle, 1 John is where we're at. There are these tests that he gives. And I just want to warn you, tonight we're going to do them. You can't study for them, but you definitely have to be prepared for them. John writes in his letter to the church of his day, and you and I now some 2,000 years down the road from that, we need to realize that he's not taking any kind of a chapter or verse break as he writes these things. We just need to understand this is one continuous letter. And though we break it up into nice chewable chunks, you need to understand that when John wrote this, he wrote it all as one. And so really the continuity of it, we need to continually be reminded of. John wrote it all in that context. I don't know if it was all in one sitting or not, but it definitely was all one letter. And what he wrote to the church 2,000 years ago is just as important for you and I today to be able to glean from, to understand, and receive it to our own lives. We've seen already, even as he began this letter, 
he confirmed to those that he was writing to that he himself was actually an expert witness. Look at this with me, if you would. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, we're not going to go all the way back, but I do want to, again, bring this into the context of things. There in verse 1, I'm just going to skip through a couple of verses here, but listen to what I'm saying. John writes, that which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, our hands have handled. Then down in verse 2, he says, the life was manifested, we have seen, we bear witness, we declare to you. Verse 3, that which we We've seen and heard, we declare to you. You need to understand, John was there. John was there. He might not have got a t-shirt, but he definitely had the experience of living about three and a half years with Jesus Christ himself and seeing all that was there, the manifested life of Jesus. And now he continues on since Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, John continues on in this reality of his fellowship with both the Son of God and God the Father. And he desires the body of believers, the church itself, to have that same kind of a relationship, that same kind of experience of fellowship, that koinonia. And remember, we've talked about koinonia, that living life together, that growing together, that intertwined essence of lives together, that we can have that actually with Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father himself. John tells us here, we have that kind of fellowship, and he writes this in order that you and I can have that kind of a fellowship. The problem is, the problem was, and it still is, John knew that sin caused that separation. Sin caused for all mankind that void in our koinonia, that void in our fellowship, that that God wants to have with us, he couldn't have to its fullest amount because sin entered into the equation. And even as we are believers, as we come to Christ and our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, we're washed and covered by the blood of the Lamb, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet if we are walking in sin, then there is a breaking of that fellowship, a breaking of that koinonia. And we've looked at that over the last few weeks, but that's why John, again, writes to us there. He says that if we confess our sins, then we can know that God is faithful, God is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's that ongoing work of our sanctification that we've spoken about over the last few weeks. Earlier, John had spoken about how we maintain that koinonia, that fellowship, by walking in the light and not walking in darkness. And by way of the context, by way of the reference of what John writes, we understand that walking in obedience is walking in light. Walking in disobedience or walking in sin is therefore then walking in darkness. So the reality is, you and I, even as believers, there are times that we walk in darkness. So now, John takes that thought and he begins to explain to us what walking in the light actually looks like. What does that look like in the practical sense of the word? Uh, What does it mean for you and I to walk our Christian lives in obedience. How can we know, in essence, the question is, how can we know that we know him? 
How can we know that we know? As I said earlier in the study, John lays out these tests, these three different tests. We talk about the moral test, the doctrinal test, and the social test. And these three tests are found all throughout 1 John. And he uses these tests for, well, the reality is that we need to use these tests as as self-examination in our lives to see if we really are, number one, really are believers, And number two, we really are walking in the light. John wants us, and and he desires for us, and with his writing, he actually helps us to do that self-examination of our own spiritual lives. And I say our own spiritual lives because John seems to like zero in on the need for the individual believer himself or herself to consider your own personal lives. And let's face it, it's a whole lot easier to judge somebody else than ourselves, isn't it? And it's funny how easily I can see my sin in you long before I see it in me. And I can judge it in you a lot harsher than I can judge it in me. We're just that kind of creatures. And that's why John says, no, we need to have our own personal examination in our own lives. And again, not the idea of judging a brother or sister, just like the old spiritual used to be. It's not my brother, not my mother, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We need to look and see what is it in our own lives, putting our own lives under the microscope of God's determined will to see where we stand. And John lays it out pretty plain in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3, John writes, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse four, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, before I get too far, I want you to zero your thoughts in also on this personal plural pronoun, that little two-letter word, we. And the correct usage of we, not the royal we, where, you know, the king or queen talks about themselves. They say, well, we don't think that this is the idea we need to go. No, he is talking literally. He is putting himself, you and I together, you and I together. That is the we that he speaks of. And John wants us then in this, what is a moral test, to bring in our own lives And the words that he uses, John, including himself in this statement, he says, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And what's brought out here, it's clear that, again, past experience alone does not confirm or affirm our salvation. I want to give that to you again. Because I think it's very important that every believer understands these words. I believe it's of utmost, literally eternal importance. Past experience alone does not confirm or affirm our salvation. What I mean by that is I don't stand on the fact that my senior year in high school In the hallway at Veterans Memorial Coliseum, I sat in a chair as a man led me to what is called the sinner's prayer, that I received Christ into my life. I don't count that as the assurance of my salvation. 
There is much more that we need to look at because, again, past experience alone neither confirms or affirms. It doesn't give me the assurance of my salvation because how many decades ago was that? That was a lot of years ago that I prayed that prayer. That's not the affirmation. That's not even the confirmation. Our confirmation, our affirmation of our own personal salvation actually comes through the faithful walk of obedience. Now, guys, it's not, it does not gain our salvation. It does not bring us our salvation. But it is, according to John, according to James, and yes, even according to the Apostle Paul, and even the words of Jesus, that is the affirmation that we are saved is through our walk, through our walk. James says, he says in James chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says that he has faith, if someone says, well, I prayed to receive Jesus into my life, I recognize my need for a Savior, I received the the cleansing power of Christ in my life back uh, 20 years ago. What good does it do if somebody says that if his life isn't showing it? What good is he who's someone who says he has faith but does not have works? Can that declaration save him? And he goes on to say, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says, ah, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? Then he goes on to drive it even further. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Does that mean that faith is not important? No, faith is of utmost importance, but what James is saying here is real and true faith is the beginning. I've heard it explained one time. Real true faith, that's the engine of the train. And that train is pulling behind it those good works that we are called to do. One of the greatest complaints that the Roman Catholic Church has against evangelical Christianity is that we say, oh, all you have to do is say a prayer. And you seal the deal and it's a done deal. And they look and they say, well, no, it's got to be more than that. Well, it's not the church. It's not the blessings of the priest. It's not even all the vows and all these other things that requirements of religion. And we talked about that. Religion isn't the thing that saves you. But beloved, if we are believers, I'm going to hammer this over and over and over because this is what John is hammering over and over and over. If we are truly believers... Our life will show that. Our life will be a demonstration. Eugene Peterson, in his book, a really good book, it's not a very big one, it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He writes this, he says, each act of obedience by the Christian is a modest proof, unequivocal for all its imperfection, it's a modest proof of the reality of what he attests. Now let me put that in words that make more sense to me, okay? Peterson is saying that if we verbally attest to the fact that we are Christians, then every act of obedience that we do, that's just a modest proof of that, of that reality in our life. It becomes a part of our affirmation, our personal confirmation that, yeah, we truly are saved. 
So here's the test. How do we know that we know him? The answer is, according to John, by a life of obedience to his word and to his leading in our lives. Does that mean that we never make a mistake, that we never fail? No, that's why he covered that earlier. Remember, he's writing this all as one. That's why he says, man, if we say that we've not sinned, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. So John is already attested to the reality that, man, we're still flesh, we're still going to fail. But he also does not want to use that as an excuse to just say, well... That's just the way I am. I'm just flesh and blood, and that's just the way it is. No, he's still saying, you know, if you're a believer, if you really know Jesus, your life is going to live in a way that brings honor to him. That, guys, is the beginning of the test. That is the moral test. How do I live my life? Now, he goes on, verse 5, still chapter 2, but verse 5 of 1 John. But whoever keeps his word... Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. Let me give that last sentence. By this, we know that we are in him. How? Whoever keeps his word. And truly, the love of God is perfected in him. It says in verse 6, he who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You say that you are a believer in Christ. You say that you are born again by the Spirit of God. Then you ought to be walking. Throw my we in there. We ought to be walking just as he walked. Here in verse 5, he says, the love of God is perfected in him. Now, as a believer, the the love of God is already ours. He has poured into us his love. That work of grace through faith is what allows us to abide in Christ. That's what opened the door. That's brought us to him. John is reminding the church that since we are abiding in him, we ought to be walking just as he walked. Beloved, it matters greatly how we live our lives. This is not in order to gain salvation. This is not in order to obtain eternal life. And it's not even to maintain our salvation. It has nothing to do with that. The importance of the life we live is the confirmation that we are truly believers, and more so for ourselves than for anyone else. Because I really don't see your lives. I can see outward motions, but I don't see the inward portion of our lives. And we know, I mean, even Jesus talked to the Pharisees. How can I judge you? I can't judge you. The only one that I can really run this test by is that guy that I look in the mirror every day. Is it real in my life? And that's what I want each one of us to understand. And I believe that's what John is writing, that we need to have that within our own lives. The Holy Spirit of God is directing our lives, and we walk in obedience, that that obedience that, that just hears his gentle wooing. That's the life I love, is when I can, in the craziness of the world, I can hear that still small voice of God saying, hey, David, over here's the way to walk. Walk this way. And, and even when the word says that he can lead us by his eyes. But you know what? If, if I'm not in his presence, if I'm not seeking after him, 
I'm not going to see his eyes. I'm going to be distracted by everything else or distracted by my own flesh. I want to live in that presence of being able to hear that still small voice. I want to live in that presence of being able to see the face of the Lord as he just kind of glances over here, over there. And I know which way to go because that relationship is there. And beloved, when we allow sin to enter into that, it pushes us further away. It blocks up our ears. We neither hear nor do we see the truth of God. Then we begin walking not by the Spirit of God, but by man's logic. And if we are believers, guess what? We start walking in something called religious logic. Looks good. Everybody else thinks it's good. So it must be good. And yet that's not what God wants at all. We have to be careful. We have to be so careful. When we are walking in obedience to his wooing, then and only then do we really have assurance. That's the affirmation for us that the Spirit of God is abiding within us. If that obedience is not present in our lives, then we need to consider. Man, we need to pause. We need to take serious consideration. We need to find out whether we are basing our eternal lives on a religious experience rather than that redemptive work of the Spirit of God. You see, back in my senior year in high school, that might have just been a religious experience. Emotions drive us, man, and we, we, can, we can make an emotional declaration. And two days later or even two hours later, doesn't mean anything to us. Our lives have not changed because we've not been impacted by the very Spirit of God. We've been moved by emotions to make a declaration that has not changed our lives from the inside out. And so we struggle all of our lives trying to look like, sound like, and act like something that we never became. And I believe that that's the greatest danger of the church today. I believe it's the greatest danger of modern-day evangelicalism, where we are quick to bring people to an altar and slow to disciple them, and slow to tell them, if you're truly born again, this is what the Word of God says. This is how we need to live. John writes. He writes to give the reader assurance He wants the church to know. As a matter of fact, he uses that word to know. Gnosko is the Greek word. He uses that word over 20 different times within this short little epistle. Why? He wants them to know. He wants to give the church assurance. This isn't a beat-down lesson. No, he's coming and saying, look, I want you to know. As a matter of fact, at the very end, he says, man, I write these things to you who know in order that you might know that you have everlasting life. That's the kind of assurance that he wants to give us. He writes to give assurance and not doubt. And he understands. John understands. He's an older man. He's been in the Lord for years and years. He's seen people through the years within the church that are both doing, walking in relationship with the Lord as well as those that are walking as deceivers of the Lord or deceivers of the church. He's writing because he understands that this life of obedience is difficult. Open our hearts.
Thanks for joining Pastor David today to study the letters of the Apostle John here on The Open Word. Though our program will come to an end today, your time in God's Word can continue uninterrupted. In fact, we encourage you to study today's passage on your own and ask the Holy Spirit to speak through what you read. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor David, you can find them at theopenword.com. We'd love to meet you too. If you're in the Casa Grande area, please join us Saturday, Sunday, or Wednesday for our weekly gatherings at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. You'll find service times and directions by clicking the church link at theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Thanks, Chris. You know, as this ministry continues to grow and reach further into the community with the message of the gospel, I know the enemy wants to stop it. I also know that prayer is a big part of holding him back. Would you take time to pray for us every time you tune in to The Open Word? Pray too for our listeners, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who may have yet to place their faith in Jesus. This last category especially need prayer. It could be that the next message you hear may be the first time they're learning about the hope that's only found in Jesus. Please pray that their hearts will be open and that they'd make a decision to follow Jesus forever. Thank you for praying and thank you for being a listener to The Open Word. Make us more.